The Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. A time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. Welcome to another episode of Worldcraft Club. Today, we are going to be doing another interview. We are very excited to have one of our uh, good friends of the show, an editor who helps us out, a contributor who you're going to be seeing around, a masterful game master, and a friend of the show, John. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are currently calling from across an ocean. Which ocean are you calling from across? Let's see. I believe that's the Atlantic. That <laughs> is, we're calling geography directly. That is the Atlantic, yeah. So you are currently in the UK, um, but we are very excited that due to the power of the internet, we are able to connect with you and have you on the show. So one of the things that we are going to be doing with this show, as we mentioned before, is these interviews. But rather than simply interview sort of one slice of the creative world, we're very excited to bring you episodes that deal with all sorts of different genres related to world building. So one of the places where we find world building very commonly is in games, game design, and in world design for games, specifically RPGs. So we are excited to have John on because, as I mentioned earlier, he's a he's a game master and a developer of worlds. And so we're very interested in talking to him about how world building plays into the practicality of what he does for his players, the people who come in and join him to play games. So before we get started, I want to uh, get a small idea of what you've been up to recently, John. Yeah, thank you. Um, things that I'm currently working on, I've got my hands in a few things. Personally, I am preparing for my next game in my world. I'm going to be using Wizards of the Coast's Ghost of Saltmarsh as a base and we'll be stuffing that into my world and flavoring it with my own uh, settings and places. Uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, your very own James is going to be hopefully a uh, part of that. Um, it'll be pretty exciting and looking forward to it. Other than that, I'm also working on a supplement for rivers. We're calling it River Walk and basically a setting guide for how to run a game traveling on a river, as well as encounters that you could possibly see there, and looking into kind of an American uh, West and Midwest travel, kind of Daniel Boone vibe in your games. And so that's been a lot of fun to write, looking to publish that sometime in 2020. But otherwise, in the meantime, you can also find me here helping out with the podcast and also over at Horizon Kingdoms. You can find that on Facebook. It's a another homebrew world that I've had my hand in and helping 
and it's a community of gamers that are playing games online. So definitely check that out. That's really cool. It sounds like you're you're pretty busy when it comes to your creative endeavors. Yes. <laughs> so I'm I'm interested. You mentioned uh, initially one world that you are building out and that your next game is going to be taking place in. Um, what's what's the name of this world? Yeah, so the name is Ceriza. Uh, it is a single continent for the moment that I've created to concentrate all of my homebrew games in and develop a setting of my own liking. That's very cool. So Ceriza, am I saying that right? Yes. Okay, cool. Ceriza. You know, just as a as a random note, for somebody who grew up overseas speaking with people in different languages and all of that kind of stuff, I'm really bad at pronunciation. I have a really hard time with that. Anyway, so well, that's that's actually an interesting point. Uh, that's actually one big topic of my world is Ceriza and talking about etymology. I remember seeing a video on YouTube about etymology and I love that idea of the names of things and the way things develop over time and history. And that's actually a big theme of my world, Ceriza, where kind of getting into the location names and just names of gods and types of people. Um, and that's one of the driving factors of the world. That's very cool because that definitely reflects the real world very closely because yeah. names don't just appear out of nothing, right? Even even in the U.S. where names culturally don't mean anything in particular, like when, when a baby is born and, and gets a name, generally there's not a lot of like cultural implication to the name or cultural background right. for the name, except maybe it might be a family name. It's fascinating because even in the U.S., people, you know, they look up, okay, what does my name mean? Yeah, the world over names mean something and they come from somewhere. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Can you give us a, a rough overview of your world? Yeah, absolutely. Ceriza is the, the main continent of which I run my games and have my situations set on. And it takes a lot of inspiration from games and movies and books of high fantasy, but also of other elements, including science fiction. So inside the world, you have lots of drastic landscapes, uh, crazy monsters, and eccentric characters. And... The main headlining thing happening in the world right now is a war that's brewing between two people groups of other sides on this world over a land dispute and resources, mainly food and building materials. So that's all pretty standard, but the one thing that makes it a little bit different is the sci-fi element, where in the middle of this world there is a desert, and sunken in that desert... Poisoning the land is essentially a crashed starship from an age long ago. And that is the root of where all of the peoples and races of creatures have come from. The world is constantly encountering 
ideas and technologies of the past in ways that are unexplainable in their own terms. And that's an idea that I play throughout the campaigns that I run and throughout the stories that I talk about. So you're really playing on the idea that sufficiently advanced technology is effectively magic, right? Correct. Right. That's very cool. So is you said you mentioned high fantasy. I'm assuming and maybe I shouldn't assume this, but you're talking about swords and sorcery setting, right? The classic D&D setting. Absolutely, yeah. There's giants, there's bird people, there's floating wizard towers and wild things like that. At the same time, you also have that science fiction root in places here or there. And for me, I am able to say from that, is technology magic or is magic technology? Are they one and the same or is there a difference? Um, it plays into that where maybe the technology is empowered by that magic of that setting or maybe the, it's vice versa. Maybe the magic is empowered by the technology. It's fun to be able to play with that with the players and for them to figure that out and for me to figure it out as we go. That brings up a really interesting point. The world that you're talking about here seems to be pretty well developed, but how well developed is it actually? And this is an interesting thing for for game mastering and a aspect of world building in gaming that is slightly different than say in uh, writing or in developing a TV show or something like that. Because when somebody is passively consuming the world you create, they don't often have the opportunity to push back against the boundaries of the world and say, what about this? Mm -hmm. However, when you're playing a game, that's not the case. Instead, your players are inside the game. They are developing a storyline along with you, and they are constantly running into situations that you didn't necessarily pre-plan for. So I'm going to ask this in sort of two ways. First, What's your personal style when it comes to dealing with aspects of your world that the players are encountering for the first time and you've never thought about? Second question, how do you feel that the sense of mystery that your world has, because there isn't this clear definition between technology and magic, how do you feel that that mystery plays out with players with players encountering stuff for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say I, I write these down specifically, but I do have these mental categories of the basic tenets and pillars of what defines the world. And then a second category of things that are more developed and set in stone, but not necessarily immune to influence. And then the third is the open-ended stuff, like here's the place name, it is somewhere around here, and I'll develop that when we get to it, and just keep a category of ideas of how I could fill that in. So the pillars of this world would be that you have the magic science uh, intertwining, then you have the conflicts of the world that are going on, and then you have the underlying secrets that 
I have I have like two or three that I've defined for the world, one of which was revealed in the last campaign, that the world is actually being influenced by mind flares to dissolve into chaos so that they may come in and usurp some control over the peoples of the world. Mind flares. Mind flares, man. They're not incredibly strong, but I, I love them with my creepy tentacle-based heart, and they're wonderful. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> um, those are kind of the core pillars of that game. Something that would be more detailed is main city names, main location names, and the general geography of the world, but I don't have that all necessarily mapped out to a T. And then the soft details would be like the town of Whitebridge, which I've named and I know it exists, and it has a white bridge, and that's about it. And if you go there, we'll put in more details, but that's with help from the players and also... Um, just letting it sit there until we get to it. That's interesting because you're approaching this the same way that a person normally experiences life. That is to say, I might know a town exists, but I've never been there. So the only information I know about it is its name and its rough location, right? And when I get there, I'll look around and I'll see what I see. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I find that that's a um, pretty helpful way for a GM, especially if any of you out there listening to this are new to GMing and you're interested in developing a world, um, don't be afraid to leave some details out because, John, you said something that's very interesting. You said that the players actually help in filling out some of the detail. Can you just, as sort of a practical lesson for people who are who are getting into GMing, can you break that down for me and give me just a glimpse of how that plays out in your games? Sure. Well, I consider role-playing games a game of decision-making, right? People asking questions and making decisions on those questions. And if a player were to stroll into the town of Whitebridge, they're going to have some questions. They're going to have some ideas about what's there. They're going to have some needs. And I am, as one human being, not going to be able to anticipate everything that they have to offer, and that's okay. What I need to be able to do is sit there and think for a second, is that plausible what they're asking for? If it's not plausible, is there an alternative that I can give them? Through those questions, we're able to reveal the identity and reveal the details of that setting. I mean, I'm not sure if you'd want to do this, Seth, but just hearing the name of the town of Whitebridge, would you have one or two questions about that town? And I could just help create some ideas about it right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's actually a, a really fun way to engage over this idea. So a great example of this is, let's say I'm in the party. My rogue is coming along. He's a little bit annoyed because he's been dragged off of his uh, riverboat and he is being taken to this town. The fighter has decided that we're going. And as I'm going into the town, my character's question is going to be well the town name is white bridge means there's a bridge there's a bridge over something the first thing i want to know is okay what is the major feature of this town that makes it white bridge absolutely so as your character is dragged through town maybe to the nearest tavern or pub uh, 
you would see very clearly that there is a gigantic white bridge made of these white stones. And the idea for me thinking is that maybe the thing that strikes out to you and why the sound is so clearly named after it is this is a really big bridge spanning across a large portion of the river, obviously an engineering feat of itself. It's just massive size and width, both spanning across the river and also from left to right and being able to cross over it. You're to have more than three carts side by side going across this bridge at one time. Which immediately speaks to the fact that either it is, as you said, just a, a massive engineering feat, either there was some magic involved or the people in this in this world are good with engineering, which is fascinating because it brings up another detail that is implicit, right? That either something is going on uh, or either they're smart enough to leverage magic for this sort of mundane thing of building a bridge or their mathematics and their engineering is sufficiently advanced. So from there, and maybe we'll just add one more detail, you know, my rogue is interested in figuring out where he can sell all of the stuff he is inevitably going to steal while he is in this town. Because while I would not call him a kleptomaniac, it's on his sheet. Yeah, I would ask at this point, if I'm looking for ideas and I've kind of got one or two brewing, but what is your personal favorite place for your rogue to go and sell things? Is there a, a particular spot or type of contact that you'd like to get in touch with uh, when you're selling things or you know, picking up for dropping off contraband at your favorite local town? Yeah, so uh, I, think, I think Mr. Rogue is quite partial to um, finding consistency because you want to be able to offload stuff as fast as possible. So maybe a person um, who has a, an established store that also takes stuff on the side. Okay, yeah. So I'm imagining that with an established store, there is a classic adventures supply store where there's rope and there's gear, traveling gear, exploration supplies, rations, things like that that you would be able to find. We'll, we'll call it the, the horse's stall. Uh, I think that's, <laughs> that's an interesting name. And located quite soon when you cross the bridge into this town, you see it on your left. And you would find that after some conversation, maybe slipping in a, a word or two a thieves can't, you'd find that the owner of this place would direct you to a door that's hidden behind the ropes hanging on the wall. And in the second level of this building is where there's a bunch of traders and people who are looking to offload some of their cargo and, well, away from prying eyes, we should say. Nice. So all of a sudden, you can see there that every detail that we add to this world is adding to the boundaries, right? It's adding to the world building. It's adding to my expectation of the world because if in this big town there's a uh, there's a fence, somebody who's going to buy and sell stolen goods in one of the major vendors or one of the major shops, then that's going to color the world in a particular way, right? But again, none of those details had to 
exist before the interaction that we just had, right? And obviously, if we're sitting around a table or we're in a in a group chat online, different people are going to add to that, right? The the warrior who dragged me here might be checking out the the weapons or heading towards a blacksmith to get some armor repaired or whatever, you know, whatever it is that they're going to want to do. So, John, tell me, you've you've developed this world. Is this world specific to a system or do you think you could plug any any system into this? Yeah, so I've developed this system through fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, which is probably one of the most popular role-playing game systems out there, if not the most popular right now. However, I think that you could plug another system into it. I mean, I think you can plug GURPS into anything, even though that becomes very rules-heavy and gritty. So I think Numenera would also be another good one, especially with its whole setup of there's magic, there's technology, Mm -hmm. Who's to say what is the difference? Theming, you could very easily slip this world and Numenera together and tie the knot. I think there's other systems too that would work for that out there. But I I have primarily built this around 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, Numenera is actually kind of what popped to mind when you were talking about this. But the rule set for Numenera and the rule set for for fifth edition are are pretty different, right? Numenera tends to be fairly light when it comes to actual like character rules and classes and and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it's much more of a of a discovery game than it is, let's say, a combat game. So, are there some practical ways that the rule set you chose influence the world that you're building? So, I think that. You have an element of the impossible that is possible just around the corner with Dungeons and Dragons. You could take on a world-class fencer in Dungeons and Dragons, and even if you were just a little old farmer who never picked up a stick in their life, which would be ironic. That would be ironic. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you fought this fencer, theoretically, you would have a five percent chance of landing a critical blow on this fencer, no matter your skill set. Uh, same as if you were this world-class fencer, you would have a 5% chance of just failing wildly and losing against this farmer. That implies a level of the fantastic and of the heroic and of the tragedy that is constant in the world. A 5% chance is not a small amount. And having that basic rule as a guide for a lot of systems in the game is really important, not to make things inconsistent, but to make things more plausible as you go. In other ways, you have spells, like the existence of certain spells where they can mold reality on a whim is very important. The existence of other planes, those kind of things help build the world in saying, we're not as limited as we are on our physical world in this world there's a lot more that can happen and it just kind of makes sense because there's a lot of unknown and there's a lot of spells and magic that can make that all happen i really like the idea that you're bringing out here 
that the rule of one in 20 actually adds to the world. For people who don't know, in D&D, the way you determine what happens is by rolling a D20. That is a dice with 20 sides. And you roll that, and then you add something to it, and you determine whether or not you've succeeded. That's sort of the basic rule system. Well, if you get a 20, then you get what's called a critical success. If you get a 1, this is on the D20, a natural 1 or a natural 20. Uh, if you get a 1, it's a critical failure. So you can see how that can add to the world. And then, of course, it's up to the game master and it's up to the players to appropriately weave into the story what the critical failure is, what the critical success is. As we wrap up here, I think it's a good idea for us to ask this basic question that, that's sort of driving all of our discussions about world building. When we're talking about specific worlds, uh, James and I like to use this term. And so the question is, what is your fairy cake? What did you start with that has driven the rest or the development of this world? Absolutely. A lot of the game creation for me is I want to have fun with my friends, um, which sounds a little cheesy and corny, but it's true. And for that, I wanted to create a campaign where not only the gamey content of the campaign was engaging and invigorating, but I wanted to create the world as a engaging, interesting place where players could have interesting questions and I could give interesting answers to those questions. A lot of my development of the worlds came from building these interactions where the players could engage in the world in a meaningful but interesting way, and then also have fun discovering the weirdness, but also the vastness of that setting. So this is curious, because often when we talk about starting with fairy cake and extrapolating from it, we're talking about a concept or an idea that is that drives the details of the world. But what you're talking about doing is starting with a feeling, right, or a desired outcome, the desired outcome being fun or the feeling being engagement. Your fairy cake is things that will make the players buy in, which then makes sense that your setting is, it includes magic, it includes technology, it includes political intrigue because there's a war going on, developing, you know, it, it includes all of these different things. It includes a hidden doorway behind a stack of rope where you can go and sell fenced goods, you know, it includes all of these things and it includes them because of your initial goal. It's very curious that as you're describing this, the fairy cake is not a philosophical concept. It's not a, a set of restrictions. Instead, it's aiming at a particular experience. I think you're absolutely right in that the world, while it's inspired by these fun ideas that I had about, oh, it would be cool to have a campaign here. It is fueled by ultimately that 
desire to run a good game at the end of the day and not just having uh, a cool story or a cool setting. That's so fun. I would, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to vote myself onto the Island and, and say, I'd love to, I'd love to play sometime um, in this world. It sounds, it sounds really fun. You're more than welcome to join. I've got, I've got, uh, I've got some room, so you're more than welcome to make a character. Okay. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you so much for answering our questions and and talking about your world and uh, kind of walking us through how you've been developing it. I just want to ask, is there anything that uh, is in the works that you want us to be keeping a particular eye out for? And where can we find more about you? Certainly, Seth. First, thank you for having me on and interviewing. This was a lot of fun. It's been a joy working with you guys. I'm looking forward to working with you continuing on in the future here. Where you can find me, best way to get a hold of me is to look me up on Twitter. My handle is at DocWord. That's D-O-C-W-E-R-D. Yes, I know it's misspelled. That's the point. Uh, <laughs> but in the future, you can look out for Riverwalk, which I'll post on Twitter as that gets under development and underway. I've got some other things I'm working on in between. You can also look me up at Horizon Kingdoms. Look that up on Facebook. Join the Discord server. It'll be a lot of fun. And also look out for me here because I'll be contributing and helping out here occasionally. So feel free to ask questions and look for me here. Yeah, I am absolutely going to. Um, I'm absolutely going to be asking you to write some blogs and and maybe even doing an episode on Riverwalk. We're very interested in in how these small details can build a world, and that sounds and Western riverboats are right up my alley. Excellent, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was John. Thanks for joining us, and we're looking forward to giving you much more content just like this in the near future. So keep an eye on our Facebook page, Twitter, Patreon, and of course the website. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for joining Seth and I on the Worldcraft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.